Well, good morning, Hawaii Kai Church. It's great to worship with you corporately again this Lord's Day. And uh, I'll definitely be praying this week for the VBS. I understand the spiritual ramifications that VBS can have. And uh, we ask that the Lord would use it to plant gospel seed in the lives of a lot of young ones and that it would sprout to gospel faith. Well, if you have your Bibles with me, turn to them to the book of Ruth and that to chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. As we continue looking at this very short Old Testament narrative, Ruth chapter 1. And for this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 18, but let's come to the Lord in prayer before we do so. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we worship you now through the preaching of your holy word, we ask that you would do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We ask that you would sanctify us in your truth, and we pray that your word is truth. And so bless us now as we come before the text of scripture. We pray that you would speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There is a temptation that always, almost always confronts us, a tension that really exists inside of us, and that is to seek first the kingdom on the one hand and to seek first ourselves on the other. And we just sang it right now, our hearts, as we just sung, are drawn to self-exalting. That's the struggle that we have, to pursue holiness and to go down the narrow road, or to pursue convenience and ease and go down the one that is wide. And what we've seen thus far in the book of Ruth was a woman who lived her life in the latter. She sought to live by bread alone and not by the words that came from the mouth of God. She chose to fulfill her temporal needs, her physical needs, while disregarding that which was spiritual. And rather than finding comfort in the God of Israel, she sought it in the fields of Moab. But God's will was being done. God's will was being done in heaven and on earth and in the fields of Moab. And it was painful. It was severe. For here Naomi's husband died, making her a widow. And then her two sons died, making her childless. And what we found in the first five verses of the book of Ruth last Lord's Day was that Naomi's life was decimated. Her life stripped from every earthly pleasure, her husband, her family, her comforts, her, her joys, her pleasures, her securities, her present and her future. It was all gone. And that's because God had taken it from her. She lost everything and now had nothing. And we were left asking this question, well, why did, why did God do this? Why did God afflict her and bring what many would deem the worst thing that could ever happen to her? And here's the answer. The answer is because he loved her. And because he loved her, he sought to hurt her. And because he sought to hurt her, he did so in order to save her. You see, the sharp instrument in the hand of a murderer will harm you. But a sharp instrument in the hand of a surgeon will save you. Well, what was happening in the life of this woman? God's will was being done. 
and that to rescue her, to redeem her. And what we're going to find moving forward in this book is just that, not only for Naomi, but also for a woman by the name of Ruth. And not only for Ruth, but also for the people of Israel. And not only for the people of Israel, but for sinners such as ourselves. You see, this story that we find here in our Old Testament is not just a story about the salvation of a woman and her daughter-in-law. For in this dark period of the judges, God's saving purpose shined ever so brightly by using these two women to usher in Israel's greatest king, King David, but more so the king of kings who now sits enthroned in heaven. You see, this book, this book of Ruth is really the gospel of Ruth for all intents and purposes. The gospel of Ruth, which points us ultimately to Christ. You see, you, you'll find the name of Ruth in only one other place in all the Bible outside of this book. And you'll find it in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. You see, the reason why Ruth is in our Bibles is because of that. God wants to show us the salvation he has brought to his people, not just for a woman, but for all of us. Well, I want you to notice as we come back to this story that the characters that have been silent, they finally begin to speak. And much of what we have before us in verses 6 through 18 is what we call in grammar direct discourse or dialogue. This is conversation, conversation or speech. Now, after having been devastated by the death of Elimelech and the sons Malon and Kilion, the family members that are remaining, they decide what they're going to do. And they do so with three distinct conversations. So if you look down in your Bibles, the first conversation is in verses 6 through 9. And the second conversation is in verses 10 through 14. And the third conversation is in verses 15 through 18. And those three conversations will serve as our outline this morning. But here are some details that you need to know about these three conversations. Each conversation becomes more urgent and more pressing and more serious than the one before, which tells you then that the most important conversation will not be the first, but the last. And each conversation ends with a short summary of what took place following the conversation. And you'll see that in verse 9 and 14 and verse 18. And they tell us what the characters eventually did when the conversations, when they ended. And that's also going to be important. Well, we begin with the first, with the first conversation. And notice we're given a little bit more context before we get there in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now on the service, it may appear that the place where there was no food now had food, prompting Naomi and her daughters-in-law to go back to the place where there was now food. Looks like a simple turn of events. But I want you to notice that there's more going on here. Notice it says in verse 6 that the Lord visited his people and gave them food. In other words... This was God's doing. Just as he had caused the famine because of Israel's disobedience, he had now caused that very famine that he had ordained to end. And though it's not said explicitly, it appears, it appears that the people of Israel, that they repented. Remember that God told Moses, if the people don't obey the voice of the Lord, all these curses will come upon you. 
But he also said to Moses, but if my people, if they repent, I will withdraw my anger and I will lift these curses from them. And that looks to be the case here. But while Israel repented, while the Lord visited Israel, notice where Naomi was. She was still in Moab. She wasn't with the people of God where there was this corporate cry of repentance. She left the land that God promised to bless and searched for greener pastures. She forsook the provisions of God, trusting rather in the provisions of Moab. But as God relinquished his judgment and as he replenished the land, we ought to ask ourselves this question. Was Naomi deserving of it? Because remember, Naomi's in the fields of Moab and she had heard while in the fields of Moab that God had visited his people. And so was Naomi deserving of hearing that news? And the answer is no. She didn't deserve it. Well, how then did Naomi end up going back to the land? Beloved, the answer is by grace. You see here, Naomi was in the fields of Moab. She was in that place where it was spiritually barren and lifeless and bleak. She was in the place that was filled with idols. She was in the place that was filled with rebellion. And yet somehow, someway, while in the fields of Moab, she's able to hear the good news. The word of the Lord penetrates through the darkest of places and reaches the ears of Naomi. Well, how then again did she receive this word? The only answer is by grace, by grace alone. And you see, church, this is such a fitting description of the grace of God and its bearing in our own lives and in our own hearts. It's because how else can we describe our hearts but as a place that is spiritually barren and lifeless and bleak, filled with idols, filled with rebellion? You see, we have more in common with Naomi than we think. That while the fields of Moab were out there for her, the fields of Moab used to be in here for us. Yet by God's grace, his word broke through. By his spirit, the word was able to penetrate. You know, as I was meditating upon this passage, I thought about the parable of the sower. And you remember in the gospel accounts, the parable of the sower. And remember how the seeds were spread on different types of different types of soil. Some fell along the path where the birds picked and they ate. Some fell upon the rocky soil. Some fell among the thorns and some on good soil. And Jesus, he goes on to explain how the word of the kingdom failed to take root in all the other kinds of soil except the good soil. And he says in Matthew 13, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears bears fruit. But the question is, how does a person get this soil? How is a person able to have this good soil in his heart? How is a person able to hear and understand the word of God? And you see, the answer is only by the very grace of God. It's by the, by the grace of God. God's word tells us that the natural person is not able to accept the things of God for they are folly to him. And so how does a person come to accept the things of God? By the very Spirit of God who is given to us by the very grace of God. And you see, it was that very grace. 
It was that very grace that was working in Naomi as she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people. Look with me in verse 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi takes the family, and they begin to make the hard journey through the steep and rugged terrain back to Bethlehem. This is a journey of about 50 miles, one that would have taken them around seven to 10 days. And it was somewhere along that journey that Naomi, finally, she broke her silence to start a conversation. Look with me in verse eight. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And you can just imagine here Naomi as she walked with her, with her daughters-in-law, quiet and silent. But what was going through her mind was this. These two poor girls, they shouldn't be here with me. They've been through enough. Though my future is done, there's still hope for these two. While I'm old, they're still young. Why should they attach their lives to a widow like me? You see, there's a reason why the Bible talks so much about widows and orphans. is because of all people, they were the most needy. And so for the two daughters-in-law to stay with Naomi, it meant the expense of their own. But most importantly, I want you to notice where each woman was going. Naomi, she's going back home to Bethlehem. But that can't be said of these two daughters-in-law. The two daughters-in-law, they were what? They were Moabites. The land of Judah was not their home. Rather, it was hostile territory for them. And so the possibility of these two Moabite women finding husbands, it was very slim. And so Naomi, carrying this burden on the journey, she, she speaks up. Go, return each of you to your mother's house. And this is how we know that this is what Naomi was thinking. Look at verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you, in the house of her husband. Well, notice that this is what these two daughters, they needed. Husbands, which equated a future, which equated protection, which equated livelihood. And so Naomi says, I want you to go. Go back home. You shouldn't be coming with me. There's nothing for you if you follow me back to the land. And I want you to notice here in verse 8, which is very interesting, Yes, Naomi tells them to return home, but notice how she describes home. She calls it there in verse 8, to your mother's house. Now, that's an odd way of describing a person's home, to your mother's house, because throughout the Old Testament and even in the New, the home is referred to as the father's house or as the father's household. Remember in Genesis chapter 12 when God tells Abraham to go from your country and from your family and from your father's house to the land that I'll show you. What then is the mother's house? Well, it's a very unique phrase and it's found in only one other place in scripture and it's found in the Song of Solomon and there it's referred to as this. It's referred to as the bedroom of a person's mother where two lovers found privacy. Now that's an awkward and odd place and possibly the last place that a newly married couple would want to consummate their marriage. Come, we just got married, let's go to my mother's house. Uh, you don't want to say that. But in the context of Israel, that was the custom. 
which meant it was the place where man and woman sought to be fruitful and to multiply. And so Naomi is telling her daughters-in-law, go back home, for that's where you'll find a husband. This is where you'll have children. This is where you'll be filled. That is where you'll have anything close to a happy life. That is where, as Naomi says in verse 9, you'll find rest. And here's the commentary, the short narrative that follows at the end of verse 9. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. It's a heart-wrenching scene. These three women who have been devastated by death, afflicted with pain and suffering, they, they embrace one another, and they say their final goodbyes. A woman with her, with her two daughters-in-law, and there's no doubt that she loves them, and they love her, and it, it was a relationship that was forged even stronger in the fires of affliction and you know, there's something that happens when people go through trials together. It hardens the glue. It strengthens the bond, which is why for you, Christian, the last thing you want to do when faced with trials is to pull away from the church. You see, the most spiritually damaging thing that you can do to yourself in times of affliction is to withdraw from the people of God. And I see it all the time. Christians, when faced with adversity, when dealing with affliction, they retreat from, from the place and the people that they need to be with. Well, coming back to Ruth, this mother and her daughters-in-law, they loved each other, and their love grew through thick and thin. Well, now, as we heard Naomi speak, the two daughters-in-law, they respond, which leads us to the second conversation. Look with me in verse 10. And they said to her, no. We will return with you to your people. And so just as Naomi had time to think, so did these two daughters-in-law. And maybe through all the emotion, they decide together that they'll both stay. And they tell Naomi, we're not going back. We're going to stay here with you. And that's a huge statement. That's an enormous sacrifice, which shows you just how much they love their mother-in-law. You know, this past week, my, my parents came to visit they're from California. They came to visit for a week. And let's just say that it was a time of testing for my wife. And um, I won't say more lest I get in trouble. I'll just leave it at that. But notice how Naomi responds in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Notice her response. It's, it's even sarcastic. She goes from saying go in verse 8 to now turn back, my daughters. The, the command gets stronger. The command feels more pressing. It seems like even a rebuke. Listen to me. I'm your mother. You're my daughters. Turn back. Return back. And notice she goes on to demonstrate to them just how ridiculous it would be for them not to. She says, first of all, look at me. Do I look pregnant? Have I yet sons in my womb? Second of all, I don't even have a husband. Third, you see how old I am? And so she says, let's just take this scenario for a second. Let's just say for you to have any kind of life, this is what would have to happen. I would have to get married tonight. And if I were to get pregnant, what are you going to do? Again, the baby would have to be a boy. And there's two of you. I would have to have twins, two twin boys. 
And after all that, you're going to wait until they're old enough to marry? It's impossible. You see what Naomi is doing here. She's showing these two women how ridiculous it sounds for them to stay with her. And if they go with her, there is absolute zero chance that they would have anything of a normal life. And you can just sense the frustration in her words. Just turn back, please. But here's why you can't go with me. I want you to look down at the middle of verse 13. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You want to know what Naomi is saying? I am much too bitter for you because God is against me. In other words, stay away from me. Not so much because you'll have no husband with me. Not so much that you'll have no life with me, but because God is against me. This is why you have to stay away from me. It's because God is against me. He's made me bitter. And if you go with me, he'll do the same with you. You see, Naomi is not unfamiliar with the records of her people. You know, she knew exactly what she was saying. As an Israelite, she knew her history. And she likened her, her current state, her current condition, to the bitter waters of Mara that the Israelites came to after crossing the Red Sea. And she'll do this again at the end of the chapter. And there you'll remember that the bitter waters of Mara were undrinkable. And just the same, she's saying that her bitter life had now become unlivable. And the anger, the discontentment, the complaining and the grumbling that took place there by the Israelites, what was taking place in her soul. Notice what she said. Here's why my life is bitter. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That the divine hand that struck Egypt with plagues, that destroyed a generation of Israelites, is the very same hand that has stretched out against me. That God's hand has plagued me. That God's hand has destroyed me. And you see, for the very first time in the story, Naomi, she confesses who is behind all her affliction. It's God. God has brought this upon me. And you see, Naomi, like any other Israelite, she understood the sovereignty of God. But here was the problem, that though she confessed God was sovereign, she refused to admit that God was good. You know, for us as Christians, in the midst of our own trials and afflictions, I don't think we have a hard time admitting that God is sovereign. But we have a hard time trusting that God is good. Which is why in our trials and in our afflictions, we're, we're, prone, to, we're prone to leave him. And we're prone to forsake him. We don't believe him to be good. But know this, Christian, that even in the pains that God brings into our lives, they are but means of grace. And I know that's hard to believe. John Owen, he's a Puritan. He said this quote, we will not know the power of grace until we feel the power of testing. We must be tried to realize the glory of being preserved. You see, God tests you and he tries you that you might know more of him. You know, there's a verse in Psalm 119 that has always stood out to me. It comes in verse 67. 
And there the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It's to say that it was the affliction, the affliction of God that has brought me back to his word. And this is the process that was taking place in Naomi. She has gone astray and the Lord afflicted her and is now bringing her back to him. And she tells her daughters-in-law, don't even try coming with me. Turn back. You don't want to drink the bitter water that I'm drinking. You don't want God to be your adversary. And notice as the second conversation closes, notice the narrative in verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We begin to see that these two daughters-in-law now act independently and on their own. Well, we enter our third and last conversation, which I said would be the most important. Look with me in verse 15. And she said, see, your your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Well, how did Orpah respond to Naomi's final plea? She complied. She realized that at the end of the day, there was no hope for her. If she really wanted a life, then she had to return back to Moab. A husband, children, protection, security, happiness, fulfillment. And so she goes. But she goes never to be seen, never to be mentioned ever again in all of Scripture. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on the book of Ruth, he says this, Orpah chooses the familiar, the temporal, the visible. Who knows if there is anything more? She opts for this world's wisdom and turns away from the wisdom of God. Well, why does he say that? It's because at this point, these two women, they came to a crossroad. They had a decision to make. Take the wide road or take the narrow road. On one side was all that life had to offer, and on the other side, there was nothing. Well, ask yourself this. Well, why is that even a crossroad? Why is that even a decision to be made? Who in the world would choose nothing over everything? And the answer is someone who values something plus nothing over everything. And Jesus, he said it like this, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, why would a person choose nothing over everything? Only if God is on the side of nothing. Orpah chooses everything and in essence loses her life. Notice verse 15. She went back to her people And back to her gods. But what about Ruth? Ruth here expresses in these next two verses one of the most incredible statements of love and loyalty. Now, there's something that you need to know here that is cloaked in our English Bibles. And if you have a New King James version, you'll see it as it's blocked together. But if you have a different version, I have an ESV. They don't do that. But the words in which Ruth speaks here are not only one of the most incredible statements of love and loyalty in Scripture, but one of the most poetic. And that's very odd to find it in a story. You see, this is a narrative. This is a story. We expect to find poetry in books of poetry like the Psalms, like Proverbs, but not here in a story. 
And I'll try my best to bring this out with our English Bibles. I want you to notice that her words in verses 16 and 17 can be divided into five statements with each statement consisting of two lines. Here's the first statement. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Here's the second statement. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Here's the third. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Here's the fourth. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And here's the fifth. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now those five statements in verses 16 and 17, they can be organized like a triangle or like a pyramid where the first statement and the fifth statement, they lie at the bottom of the pyramid. And the second and the fourth statement lie in the middle of the pyramid. And the third, as you can guess, goes where? It goes at the top of the pyramid. And it's the point of emphasis. The third statement here is the crescendo of the poem. It's the star of all the words. It's what we call in Hebrew poetry a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And so notice with me the statements that go on the bottom, the first and the fifth. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And here's the fifth. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now let's look at the middle of the pyramid, statements two and four. For where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And here's the fourth. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. But notice, here's the emphasis. Here's the reason why Ruth is able to say all of that which she has just said. It's in the third statement at the end of verse 16. She says this, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And to make that third statement even more powerful, it is absent of any verbs. In other words, she says, your people, my people, your God, my God. Well, what was Ruth saying here? She answered Naomi's final plea to join her sister in going back to Moab. Here's what Naomi said. See, your sister-in-law, and notice what she says, has gone back to her people and back to her gods. And so you, Ruth, go back. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods. But here's Ruth's response. I can't go back. I can't go back with her. Well, why? It's because your people are my people and your God is my God. Now you see what had happened here in the life of Ruth? During Ruth's time with this family, somehow, some way, despite their waywardness, she had learned something of God. She had come to see something of the God of Israel. And while the Israelite members of this family were non-committal, they were uncommitted, Ruth, she didn't follow. She saw the God of Israel as greater than the gods of Moab. And so she wanted to know him. She wanted to seek him. And she wanted to devote herself to him. And so while Ruth, she gave this amazing statement to follow Naomi, it wasn't so much about Naomi, but it was really about Naomi's God. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. And because Yahweh is my God, because he's my God, where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. And where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. Why? Because I've committed myself to him. 
and to his people. And this comes out, notice, out of the mouth of a Moabite, which is to say that even in the life of a pagan woman, a Moabite woman, you see, God's will was being done. You see, God was not only bringing Naomi, a prodigal daughter, back to himself, but a pagan one. As we look upon these two women, we can't help but look back to ourselves and and to ask questions. Beloved, have you come to a crossroad in your life? The wide road and the narrow road. The wide road tells you that it has everything to offer, all the earthly promises of this world, but know, know that it leads to destruction. The narrow road gives you no earthly promises, but only the promise of Christ. But you see, that's everything. That's everything. Which will you choose? If you're a Christian here, have you been staying on the narrow road? And if not, why? Have you set your face back towards Moab? What are the trials and the afflictions in your life? What are they saying to you? Are they not telling you to return back to him? It says there in 1 John 1 that if you confess your sins, that Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I also want you to notice as we close here that for Ruth to be committed to the God of Israel, it meant to be committed to his people. Notice that there isn't one and the other, but it's both. That for us as Christians, because we worship God, because we love God, we love his people. And so you ought to ask ourselves, we we ought to ask ourselves this, how committed are we to the people of God? How committed are you to the people of God in this church? Is this a place where you simply come and fulfill some kind of righteous requirement to worship and then you go back home? But are these the people that you have committed to? Because you are sons and daughters of the very same Father in heaven. That because you have committed yourself to following God, that you're committed to the people here. Isn't it amazing how we learn from a pagan Moabite what it means to love God and to love God's church from this pagan Moabite? You see, would we, church, follow in her footsteps? Would God's will be done in our own lives? Look with me in verse 18, and we'll close with this verse. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. But we ask that you would give us grace. You would give us faith, faith to trust you. Lord, we confess that we believe, but help our unbelief. And would we treasure Christ and would we treasure his people? Lord, help us to be faithful to the, to the greatest commandment, 
that we would love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we would love others like ourselves. Lord, help us to know that the people here in this room are the people for whom you died. And I pray that you would give to us an increase of affection, an increase of love for the people for whom you have died. We pray that, Lord, you would continue to grow us in trial and tribulation, that you would grow us. We pray these things in Christ's name.